0: Well let me welcome you. Welcome to Banbury Christian Fellowship Church on this the 18th of December 2022. So if you're a regular here, welcome. If you're a visitor, you are most welcome here. and Thank you for being with us and making the effort to join us here. If you haven't been able to join us and you're listening in online, welcome to you this morning as well. So um, we're here to worship God, aren't we? We do that through Uh, singing, through praying, through hearing God's word. And we're looking forward to listening to our pastor, Duncan, later on, talking from John 3. Um, So it'll be an interesting passage, born to give them second birth, is the title that he'll be uh, talking from this morning.
1: This is John 3, verses 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can say, say, do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again? When he's old, can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I, was, I say to you, unless you're born, one, born of water and the Spirit, you cannot un- enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that is which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel at that, I say to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So if it, it is So it is with everyone who is born <laughs> of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, Now, how can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you uh, earthly things you do not believe. How can you believe it? I tell you heavenly things. Because their works were evil, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that is that it might be clearly seen that his works may be carried out in God. Amen.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Rita. Right.
2: Thank you. Well, please do take a seat and let me add to Adrian's welcome and encourage you to turn back with me to John chapter 3, um, and if you want to follow along, it is printed in the notice sheet. You cannot have missed in these weeks and months that we've been in that uh, the UK has Uh, something of an immigration problem. You didn't think I was going to open with that, did you? Um, There is a steady flow of people trying to enter the country illegally by crossing the English Channel, and one thing that everyone agrees on is that something has to be done, not least of all because, well, people are dying, and what is the right response. Well you haven't come here to listen to my opinions on that. But here's something I am sure of. We will not come up with the right solution unless we're first clear on some things. We need the answers to questions like, well who is it that's coming? Why are they coming here? And why are they choosing to come here in that way? You've got to be clear on those things first. Otherwise, well, we won't know, will we? We won't know whether people crossing the channel is a threat. We won't know whether the right thing to do is to be firm or to be generous. We don't know unless we can answer those fundamental questions. And those are the same sorts of questions I want to encourage us today to be clear on, not so much about channel crossings, but of a more significant crossing from there to here that took place, the coming of Jesus to earth from heaven. How are we to respond to that most unusual happening? Well, I put it to you, there's some questions that we first need to find answers to who is it that has come? Why did He come? Why did He choose to come in that unusual way? And over last week and now again this week, we've been using John's gospel to try and find those answers. Last week we considered John chapter 1, which is a beautifully profound description of who Jesus is answering our question, well, who is it that has come? He is the eternal Word who has become flesh. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. That's John's conclusion in John 1. And this week we turn to John 3, which is not, you may have noticed, an especially traditionally Christmassy portion of the Bible. And we see that while John 1 had a big emphasis on the identity of Jesus, we find here in John 3 there is a focus on the mission of Jesus. It really answers our question, well, why did He come? We see here Jesus was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The scene in John 3 is one of inquiry. A man named Nicodemus wants to find out more about Jesus. And yet, in almost no time at all, Nicodemus finds that he's learning more about himself. If I want to know why Jesus has come, then like Nicodemus, I'm actually going to first be presented with some truths about me. And Jesus, first of all, tells Nicodemus and tells us today, your greatest need is spiritual life. Your greatest need is spiritual life. Now, Nicodemus was a religious man. Uh, He's called a Pharisee here, which tells us that he was a strict observer of the Jewish law he had memorized the Jewish law, and he lived it out every day. And he was a prominent Pharisee with some power, because John tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews, which tells us that Nicodemus sat on the ruling council. Nicodemus was an expert in the Jewish Bible don't know if you spotted down in verse 10, Jesus asks him this question. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You notice he doesn't say, are you a teacher in Israel? He says, are you the teacher of Israel? It kind of implies that that Nicodemus had this reputation that here was a guy who knew his stuff. He was the teacher of Israel. And the Pharisees, like all the Jews of their time, I suppose, they utterly despised their current political circumstances. They had once been the proud nation of Israel, and now they were a conquered people under Roman occupation. If they wanted to do something significant in their territory, well then they had to ask for permission from Rome to do it. And so their great hope was that God would send his promised rescuer to deliver them from Roman occupation and to restore their independence again. It is in this way, so they thought, God will build his kingdom on earth and they would be right at the heart of it. And Jesus has appeared on the scene and he has stirred up much hope. Already his teaching and his miracles have generated a bit of a buzz. And Nicodemus comes, and it seems like he's a spokesperson for more than just himself here. He says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. We're told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, probably to keep his inquiry from being noticed, but clearly the reason he comes is he wants to learn more about Jesus, and he's in for a surprise. Because you see, the issue of whether or not someone will see the kingdom of God has got nothing to do with Romans. It has everything to do with the condition of the human heart. And this is what Jesus gets at. Verse 3, Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. In verse 4, Nicodemus can only think of natural birth, and he's pretty sure he can't do that again. So, Jesus elaborates And he expands on what does he mean by this born again. And he tells you in verses 5 through to 8. The rebirth he speaks of, he says, is being born by water and the Spirit. It's a spiritual birth. Jesus says flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now we're going to try and explain what Jesus means by that. But first of all, I want you to notice that in verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, do not marvel. In other words, do not be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. What Jesus is saying here is, now Nicodemus, for someone who's a teacher in Israel, this should not come as some new message, as something that you've never heard before. You shouldn't be surprised to hear me say this. This is something that Nicodemus should have known. And when we look at the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible that Nicodemus knew back to front, there we find what Jesus is talking about here. We find it in lots of places, but these pictures actually come together most clearly or especially clearly in a part of the book of Ezekiel. Now you may not be familiar with Ezekiel, but Nicodemus was. Ezekiel was a prophet who God sent to his people when they'd been deported from their homeland. They were desperate. Would they ever get back to the promised land again? Well, God sent Ezekiel with a message of hope. And it was a message of hope that was far, far more significant than getting their land back. Listen to these words. These are taken from Ezekiel chapter 36. God says to them, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh." and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." far more than external things, far more than being able to rebuild a temple or to get into a particular land again. God sent Ezekiel to His people with these pictures. These two things come together. He said, I will sprinkle you with water, that is, I will cleanse you, and I will do something in your heart by my Spirit. And so, Jesus comes to Nicodemus, and He says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So when Jesus speaks about this born of the water and the Spirit, he's not talking about two different births. He's talking about one and the same event. There is this cleansing from sin, and there is the receiving of a new heart, being given spiritual life Now this is a powerful thing to say to a man like Nicodemus, who lives his life under the conviction that he must do things in order for God to accept him. And Jesus comes to him here and says, no Nicodemus, whether or not you see the kingdom of God is not about what you do for God, it is about what God must do for you. God needs to do something in you. You need to be born again. And that phrase Jesus uses could equally well be translated, born from above. And isn't that just what Jesus is describing? something that God does in a person by His Spirit? Something that comes from outside of us to change what is inside of us? I mean, Jesus says there's something that is unpredictable, something that is outside of our control about this new birth in verse 8. The word for spirit can also mean wind, and Jesus picks up on that double meaning when He says, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just like the wind, we cannot dictate its direction or its strength, so too it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And this is a very important point, just to pause on for a second. Because it's actually the point that would prove to be such a huge stumbling block for the religious authorities in Jesus' day. This seeming unpredictability of the effectiveness of the ministry of Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. In the minds of the typical religious leader looking on at Jesus and all of the claims that surrounded Him, in their calculations. Well, if Jesus really is God's promised rescuer, the Messiah, then it is obvious who it is would be drawn to Him. It would be the religious elite, those who really knew the law, those who were living exemplary lives. But as they looked on at Jesus, well, what will they find? Who is it that's drawn to Him? Well, you read through John's gospel, a polyamorous Samaritan woman, dishonest tax collectors, uneducated fishermen. There were some religious leaders, but a tiny proportion of them. There is just such an unpredictability as to who will come to Jesus. But rather than that be a stumbling block, I want to say today, how exciting is that? How exciting that we don't get to predict and dictate who or indeed what kind of person will come to Jesus. God does this remarkable work of bringing to new birth those whom He acts upon. So to think that the, the, the number of people and by God's grace the diversity of people that might come through these doors in the coming week to think that God might do this wonderful thing of bringing people to salvation, that this new birth might take place in them. Think of the, the doors through which our Christmas cards have been posted. It is in the hope that God will bring people to Jesus and save them, that this new birth might take place in them, and they would find true spiritual life. But there's a warning here for us as well, Nicodemus approaches Jesus much like the occasional worshiper who comes to church at Christmas. There's a certain acknowledgement that Jesus comes from God. There's perhaps even a recognition of Jesus' miracles. But Jesus here tells Nicodemus, you can't stop there. In fact, Jesus says that on its own is not worth a whole lot. You need to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. You need a new birth, and that comes from God. Jesus tells us here, your greatest need is spiritual life. It's interesting to me how little Nicodemus manages to say in this exchange with Jesus. And his final words in the exchange are in verse 9, and it's simply him saying, how can these things be, which is really him saying, well, how, how, how does this take place? And I think it's the question we're all supposed to ask. If I need to be born again, and it is a work of God by His Spirit, then how does it happen? How does it become mine? And here's our second great lesson in John 3. Jesus says, Your greatest need is spiritual life. And here we learn, Jesus is the only way into spiritual life. Jesus is the only way into spiritual life. And I say that because there's a key word that comes into play now in Jesus' teaching, and it is the word believe. To help Nicodemus, Jesus takes him back to a scene in Israel's ancient history. Uh, To the time when God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them through the Red Sea, but they had failed to enter into the promised land. So, God led his people through the wilderness for 40 years. And if you were to read the book of Numbers, it records a number of events that took place over those 40 years. And if there's one thing that marked out God's people in that time, it is that they knew how to moan. I mean, the uncharitable would say some things never change, but I would never say such a thing. So much so, God's people had managed to convince themselves that they would prefer to go back into slavery in Egypt than to trust God to lead them forward. Now, in Numbers chapter 21, we read one of those grumbling sessions, and there they are, they're grumbling, oh, why have you brought us out into this wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, we despise the food that God gives us every day. And so, they were judged And the judgment was that fiery serpents is how they're described. Fiery serpents were sent into the midst of the people, killing many Israelites. Moses pleaded with God for mercy. And here's what God told him to do. Numbers 21. "'Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live.' So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole.' And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What an unusual thing. But we're learning here in John 3 that actually there's something being foreshadowed in what Moses did. And there's more than one thing Jesus is getting across here. The first is that human beings are in a similar predicament to these Israelites by our rebellion against God, we are under His judgment. And the natural end of that will be death. We've all been stung by the curse of sin. See how Jesus puts it in verse 16, unless they believe in Jesus, then human beings are destined to perish. But God has provided a way of rescue. Just as those Israelites who looked in faith to the bronze serpent that Moses had made found life, so Jesus says those who look to Him in faith will find eternal life. And Jesus gets specific here, I think, because He says foreshadowed in this bronze serpent is something of the the physical that will happen to Jesus. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. In the same way as that bronze serpent was hoisted up on a pole, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up. We read through the gospel and we see Jesus nailed to a cross, hoisted high for all to see. His Roman executioners thought they were making His humiliation and shame all the greater by doing this. But in fact, for those with eyes to see it, the way of rescue from the curse of sin, from the judgment of God was being displayed on that cross. And so Jesus doesn't let us take the easy way out. He's not letting us settle for an annual glimpse into a manger. He is saying to Nicodemus and to us today, you need to believe in the crucified Savior, the one who was lifted up. You need spiritual life more than anything else, and whether you find it or not hinges On what you do with Jesus Christ. This is why He has come. You get to verses 16 and 17 of John 3, and you're taken right into the heart of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And if we're asking the sort of questions we were thinking about earlier, why did He come? Look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. We could add a few more things onto that list of reasons God did not send His Son into the world. Jesus did not come to give us an annual holiday. Jesus did not come to give us an excuse to spoil ourselves. Jesus did not come to make us feel nostalgic, to make us feel better about ourselves. He came to save the world. Which tells us that the world needs saving. And Jesus' formula here is really quite straightforward. From verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is why Jesus can say He's not come to condemn, He is offering the way to be right with God, to escape the judgment that we deserve. He has come to suffer and to die on the cross, to suffer what sinners like you and me deserve to suffer before God. And in doing that, He has made the way to God open. That is why He has come. And so, whoever does not believe well the judgment that will fall on them is merely confirming the judgment they've already brought upon themselves let me give you a trite example a few years ago amy and i attended a wedding and it was one of those uh, nice weddings where you had a meal choice to make in advance so two months out for whatever reason the cheese board seemed more sensible than the sticky toffee pudding And when the wedding came, after a lovely main course, I'm looking forward to something sweet. But let me tell you, that was some efficient operation because there was no way I was getting it. My choice had been recorded. I'm stuck with the cheese, and it's all my fault. Now friends, there's a lot more than dessert at stake here in John 3. Jesus is saying that one day every one of us will stand before God our judge and He will deal with us according to what we have done with Jesus. Have we received His Word? Have we believed in Him? Let me urge you to look beyond the manger scene today and to see the Savior of the world bleeding and dying on a cross, do you see Him there in your place? When Jesus says here, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, it's literally, more literally, whoever believes into Him, this is how John puts it, whoever believes into Him. And it carries for us then a much deeper sense of what it means to believe in Jesus. It's to believe into Jesus. It's a deeper sense than simply believing something to be true about Jesus. It carries the idea of putting complete trust in Him, And that trust applies on on so many levels. Yes, trusting that Jesus is who He says He is. Trusting Jesus with your sin, that He really has dealt with it through His death and resurrection. Trusting Jesus with your life, living for Him, openly living this new spiritual life that He gives. Trusting Jesus with your future that the decisions that you make to honor Him now may hamper what happens in the days ahead, but ultimately your your future and your hope is secure in Him. This is what it is to believe into Him, to place your complete trust in Jesus. I think it's worth reflecting as we close here on the the final few verses of our reading, because they, they actually help us by telling us what it is that keeps people away from Jesus. We're told here, really, that we are not impartial. This message about Jesus does not come to us and, and, and is not met with someone who is able to analyze it impartially. We are not a blank slate because here's the diagnosis in verse 19. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We are the opposite of a moth we are not drawn to the light. We want to get as far from it as we can. And then comes the explanation, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Right at the heart of this, of this of this allergic reaction that we have to the light of Jesus is sin. It's because we do wicked things, and we don't want those wicked things to be exposed. We don't want to admit that those wicked things are there. It is far, far easier and so much more comfortable to hide in the darkness. It's so much easier not to ever have to directly address the baggage that we carry that keeps us from God. I don't want to bring my sin to Jesus. I prefer to keep it tucked away in the recesses of the darkness. But the Bible's message to us is that if this is how we're thinking about it, we are at best short-sighted, and at worst, we're downright fools. Yes, it feels safer away from the light of Jesus, but it's a false perspective We've recently in this church been reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, and the very last verse of that book says this, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Or listen to some of these words of Jesus from Luke's gospel. He says, there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Friends, hiding in the darkness to avoid the light of Christ is foolish, because the light that Jesus brings to us is saving light, full of mercy and compassion and forgiveness, and care. To resist that will keep things in the darkness now, but the exposing, searching light of God's judgment will come one day, and all will be forcefully brought into that light. And on that day, it will not be to to find forgiveness and life. It will be to face condemnation, and to perish. Jesus' message is overwhelmingly positive here. God has sent His Son into the world, not to condemn you, but to save. I know that we would respond to Him in faith. Maybe you're a Christian here today. And you find that you live most of your days in perpetual self condemnation because your failings are not hard to see. This message comes to you today. Trust Jesus, even with your sin, for he has come to save, not to condemn. He doesn't stand over you in condemnation if you belong to Him. He calls you to turn again, turn away from sin, ask for His grace, for the power of the Spirit who is within you so that you might truly live to His glory. And maybe this is the hundredth time you've had to come to Him. He still is ready to receive. Nicodemus, who we're introduced to here, he came to the light. He appears again in the Gospel. We find him uh, pushing the boat out a little further, speaking up in the Jewish council and asking the question, "Well, shouldn't we give this Jesus a fair hearing?" And he was roundly shot down for suggesting it. But then at the death of Jesus, Nicodemus comes out of the shadows. And it's he, along with one other, who take responsibility to care for Jesus' body after His crucifixion. No more hiding in the shadows. He has stepped into the light. This new life that Jesus brings, He now lives. And that's the alternative that's presented in verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. This is that new life that Jesus brings, life lived in God. Time, perhaps, for you to step forward out of the darkness into the glorious light of the Son of God, to find the new birth that comes from God, given to us by His Spirit, only through faith in His Son. Well, let's take time to pray and to respond to these words of Scripture. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank You for these words of Jesus Christ that come to us today. And we confess before you that we so easily find our belief resting in so many other things besides Jesus. We pray for help now to center our faith, center our belief, and indeed to center our lives on Him. because we thank you that it's only in coming to him that this promise of eternal life comes to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to appreciate how much we need spiritual life. We thank you you've provided that for us in your Son. We ask that as we reflect on the coming of Jesus into this world, that we, would, that we would not dare to miss this, that you sent your Son into the world to save the world, even me, even us. And there is so much in this world, Lord, that we would want to pray for so much we would want to bring before you. We recognize, relatively speaking, we are in comfort here, we are in peace here, and we want to thank you for that. But we recognize in so many places around this world, there are others who are in poverty, others who are in famine, many who are living in the shadow of war, a great many who are living in constant fear. Father, we pray for governments around the world. Lord, we pray that they would, Lord, that they would rule with righteousness, that they would be committed to truth, and that they would be those who pursue peace. And Lord, all three of these are so lacking in the governments of the world today. We pray for our own governments and we pray nothing less for them. And we pray, Father, that you would be with those believers who have some access to the corridors of power and, Lord, that they would be a witness for what is good, what is honoring to you and what is truly for the benefit of the people of Scotland and the UK. Father, we live in such a sad world. And Father, we want to take a moment to pray for the families of those four boys who died, falling through the ice last weekend. What an unspeakable tragedy. I want a reminder of just how painful this world is, Lord. And we come to you, Lord, with so many questions. And we want to ask how long will it be until you come and make all things new? Oh, Father, we pray for comfort for those who mourn today. And, Lord, that somehow the comfort of knowing Christ would come very near to those families. We think of our own church family too. Lord, in this busy season, so much activity, so much gospel endeavor, Lord, we, we, we come and we lay it all before you and we ask you to be at work in what we're seeking to do, to make Jesus known. Father, we pray you would bring people to new birth, as they come to faith in Jesus, but Lord, help us in this busy time not to forget that there are those who are who are lonely, there are those who are deeply deeply discouraged. and we pray, Father, you would Lord help us to be a church family that uh, Lord that, that reaches out to those who need that support at this time. Lord, you know every heart and every situation. We bring some specific folks to you now. We pray for Victor and uh, pray for him in these coming weeks as he recovers in a Boyne hospital. Pray that you'd help him to be patient where he needs that. And Lord that you would help him to be free from pain and that this would be a time for Victor and for Mary. Ruth and to Rhea, two together draw nearer to you we remember very much today Lorraine and Scott and Nathan we remember James and Joe for Sarah, for Julie and Fred and we ask you Father to be near to these precious folks in their various needs various anxieties and various treatments that they're going through We thank you, Lord, that whatever we're dealing with, that Jesus welcomes each one and comes to each one today, not with a message of condemnation, but a message of salvation. And we praise you for that.
1: In Jesus' precious name, amen.